Okay, I am Carl Falk. This is the Falcon Around podcast. Still in the confines of our house, uh, my house, but hopefully very soon we will be back in studio. The announcement yesterday from the World Health Organization that the coronavirus only spreads from people who have symptoms. If you are asymptomatic, rarely will it spread. I think it's a game-changing announcement potentially. I'm not sure the reaction to it by our leaders, but hopefully that reaction will allow us to get back to the normalcy that we always enjoyed. So we'll see where that goes from here. There are sports this weekend. The Charles Schwab Challenge Golf Tournament is going to take place down in Fort Worth, Texas. No fans, but it's a real tournament. And 14 or 16 of the 20 top players in the world, the NASCAR circuit continues to go on. There is signs that we are getting back to the sports world. Get into the baseball, hockey, and basketball later. Of course, i got to start with the week that was. and An interesting week by any stretch. Last week, we talked about the protests for Black Lives Matter devolving into looting and, and rioting and just awful things. And there was some of that this week. But by and large, across our great nation, there were huge protests for Black Lives Matter and powerful protests. Hundreds of thousands of people in the streets protesting, laying down for eight minutes and 46 seconds, the amount of time that scumbag police officer Derek Chauvin knelt on George Floyd's neck. Just an amazing week in our nation's history. When you get old like I am and you have a kid like I do, you talk to your child about things differently. You look at things differently. This week, this last couple weeks, will be a time in history, heck, this last few months with the coronavirus, will be a time in history that's going to be taught in U.S. history textbooks going forward forever. And the teaching part of this past week is going to be incredibly powerful because in some ways the divide has brought many people together. And I don't know if that makes total sense, but so much is being said about this movement and so much is being brought on to this movement. You're getting people involved in it that you never thought would be involved in it. And that, to me, is a huge step forward. I'm not sure you're going to be able to change some people's minds, but to bring so many people together, it will help go a long way to allowing people to live the same life in this country, regardless of what they look look like. And I think that's the ultimate goal for, it should be the ultimate goal for everybody. And it should be a very simple goal for everybody. Sadly, it is not. And that video of George Floyd brought home how different the world is that we live in based on the color of our skin. And that is a sad, unfortunate thing that has gone on for far too long and hopefully is in the process of being wiped out and we are moving forward as a country that is unified in one goal and i'm very happy about that but even through this unification and even through this shrinking of our divide there have been dust-ups and many people have said things that have been taken in a way that just got blown out of the water drew Brees, who's going to the hall of fame the minute he's eligible 
the quarterback for the New Orleans Saints, made statements this week that just simply pissed off his teammates and created a situation in the New Orleans Saints locker room that I'm not sure gets fixed. And it's huge for many reasons. One, the Saints are one of the five best teams in the NFL, no doubt. They have a chance to win the Super Bowl title this year. Breeze has always been the leader, not only of the Saints, but of the New Orleans community. If you remember post-Katrina, Drew Brees was the guy who was the face of that franchise out in the streets, helping people, doing things, broadening the fan base, and then, of course, leading the Saints to a Super Bowl that allowed that devastated city to come back together to celebrate. Drew Brees has been nothing but a stand-up individual throughout his career. And then he made this statement, and his teammates reacted badly. Take a listen. Everyone is looking back now at Kaepernick's protests from a few years ago, and obviously they were always about police brutality, and now it's coming back to the fore, and a lot of people expect that we will see players kneeling again even when the NFL season starts. I'm curious how you think the NFL will and should respond to that, and of course you're such a leader in the league. Uh, what is your responsibility as a leader uh, in times like this for the rest of your teammates and, and players in the league? Well, I, I will. I will never agree with anybody um, disrespecting the flag of the United States of America or our country. Um, let me let me just tell you what I see or what I feel when the national anthem is played, and when I look at the the flag of the United States, I envision my two grandfathers who fought for this country during World War II, one in the Army and one in the Marine Corps, both risking their lives to protect our country and to try to make our country and this world a better place. So every time I stand with my hand over my heart, looking at that flag and singing the national anthem, that's what I think about. And in many cases, it brings me to tears, thinking about all that has been sacrificed, not just those in the military, but for that matter, those throughout the civil rights movements of the 60s and everyone and all that has been endured by so many people up until this point. And is everything right with our country right now? No, it's not. We still have a long way to go. But I think what you do by standing there and showing respect to the flag with your hand over your heart is it shows unity. It shows that we are all in this together. We can all do better. And that we are all part of the solution. There you hear Drew Brees. In the one line, never will I agree with people who kneeled to the anthem. That was the line that sparked a huge controversy with Drew Brees and his teammates. They look at him now as somebody who doesn't understand what it was about when Colin Kaepernick took a knee for the anthem and several others followed. Malcolm Jenkins, his new teammate, was very emotional in his video response to Drew Brees. Many other people told whatever outlet they were speaking to that Drew Brees doesn't get it. Drew Brees is part of the problem. Drew Brees has gone from a guy in a short period of time as somebody who is a leader and a man who gets along with the team. He's one of the guys, one of the best guys, to the guy who doesn't get it. 
And it, it's, it's crazy to look that that message was heard that way. But I think some perspective is in order to understand. You know, Booger McFarlane on ESPN, a guy I, I don't care for. I, I've v- heard very little from his mouth that has made me think that this is a guy I want to listen to. But he said that Drew Brees doesn't listen. And part of me, when I heard that, thinks this is the whole problem with our country. We're so busy posting on whatever social media forum we have, putting our idea out there. And and the great thing about social media is we all have an opinion that can be heard or read or seen, but we don't often digest that differing opinion because now we just block people. You don't agree with me, you're blocked. And this is the world that we live in in 2020 with technology. We don't have conversations. We don't have these late-night, meaningful conversations. Now, me personally, I I grew up in a – my views on race are somewhat ironic because I grew up in a lily-white town. Didn't know people of color until I went to college. And when you live in a small town, and I often say this, small town, small minds. And that was exactly the case of my upbringing. When I go to college, meet people of color, and that dude's the same as me. Who cares? And I've been fortunate enough to have a lot of great friends who are people of color. We've had great conversations, and they've taught me tremendous things. And it's You have to listen. You have to learn. It's like anything else. If you don't know it, don't assume you know it. But again, with social media, opinion, boom, out there. Oh, you disagree? Block. And that's what we do in 2020. We don't have these meaningful conversations. So when Drew Brees said that, you you hear it and you think, well, what did he say so wrong? It's his opinion. I thought Michael Wilbon hit on something that really made it stand out why it's a different world and, and the reaction to the anthem, the reaction to the kneeling to the anthem is very different for white people and black people. Michael Wilpon on PTI on ESPN. Drew Brees then apologized, a long and profuse apology. Do you think now this is behind him? No. No, Tony, I don't. Um, And I don't want this to land all on Drew Brees. I I believe the apology. I believe it was as sincere and as heartfelt as he could possibly be, and it reflects that. That's not my point today. And I'm angry today, Tony, because even Drew Brees in his apology, he doesn't address what it was that ticked off so many people, including me, which is essentially the questioning of the patriotism of anybody, and let's say the anybody in this case is black folks, who want to take a knee and have protests during the anthem when the flag is raised at sporting events. Drew Brees, and here's why this, the conversation is important. Drew Brees ain't the only one who feels this way. I'm going to say, this is my estimation, 80 to 90% of white Americans feel that taking a knee is disrespectful of the flag and it somehow is at odds with what their forefathers did, as if our forefathers weren't there dying on the same battlefields, which angers black folks, angers me. I don't think Drew Brees gets that at all. And so when he says he didn't get it, I believe him. He didn't get it, 
and he doesn't get it. But he's like, again, 85 percent of Americans or more white Americans. They don't they don't connect with what we're talking about. People, 10 people can look at the American flag, all can be patriotic and all feel differently about the specifics of what that flag represents. Because Drew Brees' granddaddies came back home, perhaps to a local parade. My uncles and dad came back home to say, get on the back of the bus. No, you can't live in this neighborhood. No, you can't try on the clothes in this department store. And they're all veterans. They all sacrificed and served this nation. Drew Brees still doesn't get that. At least the statement doesn't reflect that to me. And 90% of white Americans don't get where we're coming from on this issue. And this conversation is necessary. It needs to keep going. I believe Drew Brees. I believe he's sincere. I believe he's a good person. But I don't believe he gets this point. And, Tony, this point, these conversations are going to be confrontational. They're going to be uncomfortable. They're going to pit friends and family members against one another. If we don't go through that process, all of this means nothing. That is some heavy stuff right there. You know, I, I, I listened to that and was like, wow. M- my parent, my, my father, my grandfathers, like Drew Brees, they fought in the wars. My grandfather's in World War I, my dad in the Korean War. The military has always been something that I've held incredibly high regard and always will. But they, like many others, when they came back from the war, not necessarily war heroes, they were regarded in a way that was somewhat special, and rightfully so. You leave this continent as an 18-year-old kid, put yourself in harm's way so the rest of us can live a great life in this country. You deserve to be treated with respect and special. I always remember watching the, the movie Born on the Fourth of July, which I thought was a phenomenal movie. I could only watch it once, though, because to think that somebody who went to Vietnam came back in this country, basically shit on them was something I couldn't, I couldn't grasp. You go over there and and you see things that you you'll never unsee. And yet we're supposed to not be happy about what you did to the point where we're going to just spit in your face. Literally. It was just an awful reaction at, at a time in our country. And what, Michael Wilbon's clip made me think about is that was an awful time. The Vietnam War era was an awful time for soldiers to come back. There wasn't an awful time for black soldiers to come back. It was always that's what they came back to. Black men who served our country came back to the same crap that they left. Segregated bathrooms, back of the bus can't live here, can't work here. So it's two different schools of thought. We White people brought up honoring the military, loving the thought of the military. Black families had to deal with not only the same losses and the same problems, but those problems didn't end when the soldiers came home. In some ways, they were just beginning. And that's where still to this day, there is a different 
philosophy on country between our races. And that's what this march, this Black Lives Matter protest, is hopefully moving us beyond. And, and I think it's imperative that we do so as a country. I, I just continue to look at all of the things that have gone on in the last week and a half and all of the things that have been said. It, it, I guess as a, as a white person, if your eyes haven't been opened, then you're still not listening. There's been so many things that have been brought out that even an open-minded individual should have learned something in this past week. And I hope that we as a country take that and continue to move forward. I, I think the learning tools are in front of us, kind of like in college, man. You can pick that book up or go to happy hour. But if you go to happy hour, you're going to be in the same place tomorrow morning when you wake up. I hope we as a country can figure out a way to get ourselves beyond this. So the next question, and Drew Brees then apologized and apologized again, and his wife apologized. What, where does it go from here? What happens going forward with Drew Brees and the Saints? There is no mini camp opportunity for him to get up and speak. There is no small gatherings. It's going to be training camp, and who knows what that's going to look like. Although we're becoming more and more optimistic, like I said, that training camp is going to go on in somewhat of a normal fashion. So that'll be the opportunity that Breeze has to win his teammates over. And, and you heard Michael Wilbon, is, is the apology enough? No, it's not. So with that as the hook, it'll be very interesting to see how this season goes. I think if the Saints get off to a good start, Breeze plays well. I think even though there may be some underlying tensions, it'll be all good. One common goal working towards hopefully what they think is a Super Bowl run. They get off to a slow start. Breeze doesn't play well, and let's face it, at 41 years old, as great as he's been, he's very much an unknown entity at this point. It'll be interesting to see where it goes from here. The other part of this that I'm intrigued to see is, is what happens with Colin Kaepernick. Kaepernick has been the face of the kneeling for the anthem movement since he was with the 49ers and decided to take a knee before the anthem in the 2016 season. If you'll remember... He started in the preseason by sitting during the anthem. He met with, at the time, Seattle Seahawks long snapper and former Green Beret Nate Boyer. They had a long conversation. And Nate Boyer convinced Kaepernick not to sit for the anthem, but to take a knee. It's much more respectful. And what Boyer pointed out to Kaepernick was, this will be a protest that is heard, not dismissed because of anger. Well, that didn't happen. People reacted to Kaepernick and others kneeling in a way that I don't think anyone would have foreseen coming. Let's face it. In 2016, the last year that Colin Kaepernick played, he threw 16 touchdowns, only four interceptions. It was a terrible 49er team. They were 1-10 in, in games he started. He ran for about 400 yards, a couple more touchdowns. Kaepernick is certainly capable of being on a team. 
from there, he had two real good opportunities. With the Broncos, they were going to make a trade for him, but John Elway wanted Kaepernick to take a pay cut as he may have been a backup at the time. Kaepernick said no. With the Ravens, the Ravens did a lot of research into should we re, should we sign him and bring him in, and so much so that they used and enlisted Ray Lewis, their great murdering linebacker, to go out to the community and, and give feelers as what will the reaction be. And when it looked like the Ravens were going to offer Kaepernick uh, a contract, his girlfriend, who was the impetus behind him becoming an activist made statements about Ravens owner Steve Biscotti that he was a plantation owner of sorts and a slave owner because he was the owner of a football team and the Ravens backed away and Kaepernick hasn't played since and the kneeling issue hasn't gone away in the NFL. And as a matter of fact, and I'm going to get to it, it's going to be stronger than ever when football is played. Does Kaepernick get an opportunity? Does Kaepernick become now the face of the comeback of this nation that let's face it we're in need of a comeback this coronavirus and all the racial tensions that have gone on over the last this country needs a comeback and Kaepernick getting signed would view the NFL in a way that they're willing to now do some different things to me, the one team that makes sense, and there is only one team that makes sense, would be the Los Angeles Chargers. The Chargers have Anthony Lynn as their head coach, an African-American man, strong man. And whoever the coach for Colin Kaepernick's new team, if it were to happen, has to be a strong man. Has to be. Because the media crush will be relentless. He also would fill a need. If you look at the quarterback room right now for the Chargers, they have Justin Herbert, who was a project but a top 10 pick in the last draft. They have former Bill Tyrod Taylor, who's serviceable but not spectacular. Kaepernick would be somebody who could fit that room. There's another part of it. Let's not forget the NFL is a business. It's all about the money always. The Chargers are the second fiddle team, even though they may be the better team this year, in L.A. They're going to share the Rams' new stadium. The Chargers couldn't sell out a soccer stadium in L.A. over the last couple of years. Visiting fans bought up the tickets to allow the Chargers to have what were sellouts. But they were all visiting fans in a 25,000-seat arena. Now you're moving into this huge new arena you need to sell tickets. Colin Kaepernick certainly would do that. It's the Howard Stern theory. You don't have to like me to listen. People who dislike me listen twice as long. Same type of thing. If you like Colin Kaepernick, buy a ticket. If you dislike him, buy a ticket. It would go a long way to bringing him and the Chargers to relevance. And I think it would be imperative to have a strong locker room. And I think Anthony Lynn allows the Chargers to have a strong locker room to deal with that. Then there's the NFL as a whole. Now, this week we've had some great statements but in the NFL. We had the star players like Patrick Mahomes doing a video on social media, the I Am George Floyd video, an incredibly powerful and unified voice 
of several different young men of color who spoke out in a way that the NFL absolutely had to listen. The NFL tried their best to not have any of this social distraction be part of their league. But guess what? It's going to be again. Roger Goodell reached out, put a video out saying the NFL has to change and they have to change going forward. And I found that interesting. But one of the best voices I've heard was from a former NFL player, Arian Foster. Foster, former Tennessee running back and former running back for the Houston Texans. When he played, was always a thoughtful, intelligent guy who I enjoyed how he used his platform at at times to say some things that were meaningful. Said something the other day that I thought, man, this really changes things a little bit. It's somewhat of a conflicting narrative that Colin Kaepernick taking a knee isn't about the flag. It's somewhat conflicting, but it also is explanatory. Take a listen to Arian Foster on Pardon My Take. That's the, that's the, that's what, so when I I was having a conversation with Tommy Lauren and she was explaining to me how she felt like the protest, the initial protest, the kneeling was disrespectful. And I was telling her that you don't have a monopoly on what it means to be American and how, how to feel in America. And so when you see the flag and the star spangled banner and the stripes, you get a real like visceral feel good feeling. I don't, I don't feel that shit at all. I don't. And you and you can't make me feel that shit. I yeah. wish I did feel that shit when I heard the Star Spangled Banner National. I wish I did, but I don't like the song, the flag. I'm I'm real indifferent about the flag. I don't feel like this inherent like I love to be an American. Like it's just not. And, and a lot of us feel like that. I'm very grateful for the opportunities that I've had. I'm very grateful for all of that shit. But the the experience that I've had in America does not make me feel all happy, happy, joy, joy like it does for you when you say. I'm American, right? It's not the same. And and that experience is valid, right? And and what they're doing is they're trying to invalidate that experience. And anytime you do that, you're going to lose that battle because this is how people feel. You can't argue with emotions. Right. And mm-hmm. so you have you have to you have to acknowledge that. And if you want any kind of if if you are for any kind of diplomacy, if you really want peace, like you say you do, then you'll listen. Again, some pretty heavy stuff from Arian Foster. And, you know, we've always been told it's not about the anthem. It's not about the military. And while Arian Foster isn't saying I'm protesting the military or the anthem, just saying that the flag means something different to me than it may to you. And here's why. My experience hasn't been your experience. And, again, this is these are the communication, the the discussions that we all need to have. We need to listen to things like that, to understand that we don't all see things the same way and get to a point where we can understand each other's differing opinions. And I thought that was a great point made by Arian Foster. You know, the NFL frowns upon kneeling for the anthem. Colin Kaepernick was blackballed from the league. He settled the lawsuit. So, If you think, well, he chose not to play. No, he settled the lawsuit, was paid because of his collusion. The NFL did admit guilt, but they wrote a big check to him, which 
If I don't admit I'm guilty, but I write a check, guess what? I'm admitting I'm guilty, just trying to save myself money. During the time that Colin Kaepernick has not played in the league, the NFL has given new contracts to Greg Hardy, threw a woman against a wall, threw her onto a bed and choked her, a bed full of guns, by the way. Uh, Quincy Enumwa got a domestic violence arrest for beating up his girlfriend, got a new contract. Uh, Ezekiel Elliott got a new contract after his accusations a couple of years ago. Even a kicker, Josh Brown of the Giants. This is a guy who had several run-ins with police. He got a new contract. He's a kicker. Kickers suck. Yet Colin Kaepernick couldn't get a job. You say what you want, but those facts don't lie. You beat your girlfriend, you can still rush the passer, I'm going to give you $12 million. You take a knee for the anthem, oh, no, no, can't have you. The NFL's hypocrisy has come to rear its ugly head, and now it needs going forward to unify. And the statement by Roger Goodell needs to be backed up. There's another part of this that's going to happen. I mentioned the kneeling. Game one, week one, whenever that is, you're going to see players from around the league kneel. And frankly, I think teams are going to kneel for the anthem. Not just players, teams. And I think it's going to be, if you don't kneel, you stay in the locker room. Because you're not going to want to be out there and be the one or two guys standing, I think. We'll see how this plays out. But the other part of this is there's a guy who used this kneeling politically and did so exceedingly well. His name's Donald Trump. He's our president. And when the last time this came around, Donald Trump made the statement, fire the son of bitches, sons of bitches who kneel. If they kneel, fire them. His base loved it. Donald Trump's base is going to hate the NFL if players kneel. And it's for pretty obvious reasons that I don't have to get into because you can understand why they'll hate it. But it's going to happen. And Trump, who wasn't allowed in the NFL owners group, the 32 NFL owners, is the ultimate old boys network. If you can get in there, you are a billionaire, not only of stature, your ultimate billionaire stature. To get into that club, it's one of the most exclusive clubs. Billionaires like Donald Trump haven't been able to get in there. Remember, the USFL, he thought when all of this USFL thing was going on, that the USFL was going to be to the NFL as the ABA was to the NBA didn't happen. They won the lawsuit and won a dollar. And Donald Trump's NFL dreams at that point went away. He tried a couple years ago to buy the bills before the Pagulas did. Didn't happen. He has held a grudge against the NFL since the mid-80s when he was a USFL owner. And it's going to come out again. He already said that Drew Brees was right with what he said and shouldn't apologize. Breeze then said to the president, no, I had to apologize. I was wrong. Trump doubled down. 
Trump is starting again to get on people who kneel. Here's the other thing. When players kneel, Jerry Jones, who last time around said, any players kneel for the anthem of mine, they'll be benched. If Jerry Jones does that this time, the Cowboys, another team who have aspirations because they have a very good roster, their season's going to go up in flames because it's going to create chaos within the locker room. It's going to create chaos within the league. And some owner, because these are old dudes who never feel they have to answer to anybody, is going to do or say something that's going to create a situation that's going to be tough for them to come back from. You know, over the last couple of years, we've heard a couple owners. There's Jerry Richardson was forced to sell the Carolina Panthers because he said some things and did some things. Bob McNair, the Texans owner, said some things. There's going to be more and more of it this time around, I believe, because most of these owners have never been told no before. So the NFL, hoping that they get to play, hoping the season goes on, there's now a narrative that's going to go along with it that's going to create tension within the league, tension within the locker rooms, and it's going to be incumbent on Roger Goodell to be that strong commissioner to keep the boat, if you will, going down the right course. Keep it in the smooth waters. I don't know that it'll be able to happen. Guys like Jerry Jones have never been told they couldn't say things before. It's going to be a new stretch. And remember, J.J. has his press conference every game, right after the game, right outside the locker room. It's different in Dallas than anywhere else. I just don't know how this is going to react. But you know, again, that's assuming we have a season. We'll see. A season that I'm becoming less and less optimistic, we'll see, is the one that should be going on right now. Major League Baseball, it seems every week when I do my podcast, I talk about there have been proposals back and forth. This proposal and that proposal and, you know, the 48 games or 78 games, 110 games. Here we are. In mid-June now, we're basically mid-June, there is no settlement, and we're not close. The owners yesterday exchanged another proposal. So far, the owners have given the players three sets of proposals, varying games, varying ways that the money, the salaries for the players will work. Each of those salaries amounted to a 33% reduction. So the owners have given three different proposals that all come to the same conclusion. You're going to take a 33% pay cut, even on your prorated salary. I'm not sure the players will cave on this one. But unless they do, I don't think there's going to be baseball. I really don't. And baseball is missing such a huge opportunity. The golf this weekend and the NASCAR ratings, they will be through the roof over the next month because there is nothing else to watch. People are watching baseball from Korea because it's a live sporting event. Major League Baseball could be front and center, could be the only thing. And one thing the latest owner's proposal said was that the season would end in late September 
and they would not go past October. This fall will be an unprecedented time for sports coverage on TV. You're going to have golf majors. You're going to have college football, college basketball. The NBA and the NHL startups are going to be played in the fall. They're playoffs. So if Major League Baseball is going against all of those and college football, it's going to be left way back. And the owners know this. I really believe that there is a strong part of the ownership group that is looking at this saying, we are better off not having a season, retooling, go forward next year. Completely save our money. Don't lose any more for this season. You're not paying salaries if you don't have a season. Your fixed costs are your costs for the season. And I think those losses are far less substantial than if you pay pay players and don't have fans. And the logistics could really cause a lot of troubles as well. Now, the players, many of them are hoping they get an opportunity to play because, let's face it, playing careers are short. If you're a 4A player, guy who plays in AAA and goes up, you need an opportunity to make the team to make some money because you've got a very short window of success. The only thing that gives me hope that there's going to be a season, because at this point, I don't think there is. I read this morning, Trevor Plouffe, the former Red Wing, former Minnesota Twin, he played for a few other teams as well, has been ahead of the game with his tweets somewhat cryptically about there's going to be this, there's going to be this. He's been right about it a lot. Almost Jose Canseco-ish with the steroids. But Canseco, of course, was the guy on steroids. So, of course, he knew it. But Ploof has known these things and has been right about them. This morning, tweeted out cryptically, tomorrow's going to be a big day. So let's see what happens tomorrow, which if something good happens on June 10th, tomorrow, then maybe there will be a season. Or maybe tomorrow's the day that no season becomes apparent. But Major League Baseball, again, just not getting its act together. And frankly, I think it's a planned loss. You know what you're losing at this point with no season. That may be much more palatable to deal with than the possibility of losing more. One thing I want to throw out, too, is my New York Mets. I'm a Mets fan. If you listen to me on the radio, you know that. Their ownership group is a joke. We all know that. The Wilpons are terrible owners. They had come close to a sale in the fall, late, late fall, early winter, to billionaire Steve Cohen, $2.6 billion. It fell through because they wanted to continue to control the team, the Wilpons did, for the next five years. It wasn't going to happen. Steve Cohen pulled out. That $2.6 billion didn't include the network SNY. Now the Wilpons are actively trying to sell the franchise. J-Lo and A-Rod are possibilities. But the reality is this team has to sell. City Field has bond ratings. They have bonds that they use to build it. And the payments on these bonds, biannual, $22 million a year, I believe, are something that the Wilpons have to make. And apparently this year they can make them. But they won't be able to make them next year. 
that bond rating has been given a junk bond rating. Major League Baseball has got to watch teams like the Mets, and I'm sure the, there are more ownership groups in trouble, let alone just the Wilpons. But there was a time when the L.A. Dodgers under Frank McCord were in financial trouble, and Major League Baseball made them sell. The Mets have to sell. And they, the Wilpons, that $2.6 billion, it's not going to be close to that. I think that they might be lucky to get half of that, and it will include the network SNY. We'll see where it goes from here, but keep an eye on those things with baseball. If there's no season, I wouldn't expect. I wouldn't be surprised to see maybe a couple teams sold this offseason. And opportunistic owners, new owners, will go in and get deals on teams that eventually will be profitable again. The NBA will be the first league back. How about the NBA figuring it out at a time when nobody else seemingly can? They partnered with Disney World. They're going to be playing in Orlando, Florida. The 22 teams, this is where it gets a little interesting to me. There's going to be training camp that starts July 10th-ish, and the games will begin the 31st. So you're going to have 22 teams getting in shape. So basically a three-week training camp before the season begins. Then the season will begin with five to six games a day on a couple different courts in Disney World. It's going to be pretty cool. If you've ever watched NBA Summer League, it's just game after game after game. And that's what's going to be like for the NBA. They're going to get into the playoffs in early October or early September. It will end by mid-October. The draft will be shortly after. And they're hoping to start the season December 1st, though I think Christmas Day will be a more likely starting day. But the NBA has figured it out. Now, what's weird to me is there's going to be both the NBA and the NHL are doing this. Teams are getting together, and you've got to give them time, and I mentioned with the NBA, a three-week conditioning period to make sure the teams are ready to go, ready to play again. And then it's going to be a best of five. So while the NBA is going to finish the regular season, the NHL is not. So you're going to send a team down there, spend three, four weeks getting ready. You might only play three games. You might get swept in the first round and you're done. Is that worth it to a team? Now, I think it is because I think you can bring maybe your AHL team or, you know, other players in almost like a training camp situation and get players to get an opportunity to get workouts in and, you know, use it as almost a development camp, for lack of a better way of saying. If you're a team that you know you're going to get swept out early on, this could be something of a development camp going forward. So I think it is worthwhile, and I frankly think that the teams that aren't involved in this are at somewhat of a disadvantage. A team like the Sabres, they didn't play after mid-March. They're not likely to play again. Till January 1st. That is a long time for a team not to be together. Meanwhile, other teams have continued to stay together, and they've had essentially two training camps in that time. So not perfect, but at least they're getting their act together, which is more than I can say 
for Major League Baseball. Finish up this week with a little Syracuse basketball talk. And, you know, I know it's June and I know the season ended strangely this year. Elijah Hughes will be gone. Best player from last year's team will go in the draft. But over the last couple of years, Jim Beheim has been criticized because of his recruiting. He didn't get the top stars to come to Syracuse. And frankly, it's shown. They haven't had a strong ACC team in a couple of years. They're a middle of the pack team year in, year out in the ACC. But this year, this week, the Orange had a very good recruiting week. The first thing they did is they got a center for next season, 2020. Frank Anselm is the young man's name, 6'10", 220, going to add some size to his frame, a rebounder, a banger. When's the last time Syracuse had a physical presence in the middle of the zone? Long, athletic, Brahma Sidibe. Think of a guy like that, even Jesse Edwards, freshman from last year. They've been recruiting a certain type of player, a skinny, athletic, middle-of-the-zone guy. This four-star recruit that will join the team this year is a different type of player. He's also got a nice 15-foot jump shot, reportedly, has some low-post moves, baby hook shot, a lot of little things going forward that could develop. It was a time when a big man went to Syracuse and they would develop. And now if you look at the team this year, the depth in the middle, I mentioned Sidibe, I mentioned Jesse Edwards. There's also John Jock, who was a freshman last year, who redshirted, who will be there. So there is depth in the middle of that zone. And this young man, Frank Anselm, may have the biggest upside of all of those names that I mentioned. He will play this year, and it'll be a much different year. Of course, Quincy Garrier will be back. Rectolizage will be back. You've also got guys like Buddy Beheim and John Joe Girard III, who will likely be the focal points of the offense. So this year's team may not take that huge step forward, but at least it's laying the groundwork. There's a couple freshmen coming in. You've got Woody Newton and Kadari Richmond, and also the transfer, which he hasn't received clearance to play this year. Alan Griffin, kid from Illinois, who's definitely a starter on this team if he has eligibility for the upcoming season. But the bigger thing may have been that they inked a forward for next year, Benny Williams. This is a top 50 recruit. Remember, they've also got Dior Johnson coming in in a couple of years. Dior Johnson is a top 10 recruit. Big time upside. Jim Beheim may not be getting the Billy Owens, Derek Coleman's that he used to get but I think that this week and the Dior Johnson thing is showing that this new staff, and remember when Mike Hopkins left and went to UW, it took a huge part of their recruiting base out west with him. See Isaiah Stewart. I think this week shows that the staff has now gotten their footing solidly beneath them and the recruiting has finally step back to where it used to be. And I think going forward, if it continues, the Orange are going to be back to some national prominence before too long. And I frankly can't wait. Already looking forward to seeing what the new dome, I'm sorry, the stadium, that's what they're calling it now, the stadium, not the dome, looks like and what sports look like going forward. 
Let's hope we're getting close. We'll talk again next week. Thanks for listening. This is the Falcon Around Podcast. I'm Carl Falk. Have a good week.